Good morning, Philadelphia. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM radio, the Middle East Forum Century program, coming to you every Wednesday from 10 to 11 AM from City Line Avenue. But this morning, I'm recording from Frankfurt, Germany. I have been on a continental European tour for the last five days, getting a better understanding of how the Italian government is approaching the uh, precipice of its migrant problem after the joint combination government between the Liga and the Five Stars movement. The two parties that comprise the new Italian government have been dealing with some of their Middle East, North African migration and national security problems. I now have spent the full day, it's, it's right now 4 o'clock, 4 in the afternoon, in Germany, uh, interviewing members of the local political class here, from the local parliament, from the city council, from the uh, political leadership in the faith-based communities, and a lot of the same issues that Italy is facing. Uh, Germany is also uh, going toe-to-toe with, however, Italy's problems largely emanate from North Africa, whereas Germany's are being from Syria, Turkey, and some other places that are uh, more in the central Middle East. We have an exciting program today. We'll be joined by Ayman Jawad at Tamimi, the Jihad Intel Fellow at the Middle East Forum. Ayman, just like one of our other guests, Jonathan Spire, is an on-the-ground, in-the-field researcher. He has spent multiple times in the past uh, few years not just traveling to Syria, but also to Iraq. He has gone up and down and east and west throughout the Middle East, trying to bring a more nuanced local view on how jihadi activity operates in those countries. Then we have an expert who will be speaking to us about Russia-Syria relations, especially relevant since after some of our prognications, prognostications that came out last week following the downing of an Ilyashov-20 Russian uh, jet by Syrian anti-aircraft missiles. I thought instead of me just prognosticating and giving you my opinion that I might actually bring an expert from Russia, direct from Moscow on this program, to give you a little bit of the other side. And we'll have some tough questions for him. But in the meantime, I'd really like to address this European issue that I've had uh, uh, a good week to address, but also something that I've been uh, reading and writing about and analyzing for the past three or four years. I'd first like to point you to an article that I wrote with a uh, uh, another friend, uh, Gary Gamble, from the uh, Middle East Forum, he used to be our online editor, called Turkey's Human Wave Assault Against the West. This was an article that came out in the Hill newspaper, where I uh, often write, and it was right at the time when Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, uh, was starting to really face the, uh, the music with the refugee problem that has now led to over one million refugees, uh, migrants, economic migrants, infiltrators. It really depends on what situation you're in and where your political leaning is and how you classify them. On, on the way in which you look at this problem. And, and some people, to be fair, don't see it as a problem. They see it as a way to address labor shortages in Germany or in other European countries. They see it as a way to provide humanitarian protection 
for people who are fleeing genocide and torture, but many others see it as a drastic demographic imbalance which has shifted German culture and the German way of life and the fabric of neighborhoods and towns and states and the country in just a short three or four year period. But getting back to this article, the um, Turkey's human wave assault against the West, which was a uh, an early clarion call, I think, an early warning that um, that uh, came out in, uh, I guess this is July, December of 2015. I want to start from this. For months, Western policymakers have agonized over what to do with the masses of Sunni Muslim migrants flooding Europe by the boatload, particularly Syrians. Largely missing from this discussion is the question of why this flood is happening. And this is an important point to address here in Germany, and also from the American point of view when they're looking at this refugee and this migrant issue, uh, as it, now I think we're in the seventh year of the Syrian civil war. But the problems that are the aftershocks or the after effects of the civil war start not in Germany. They don't start in Europe. And they actually largely part and parcel don't start in Syria. They start with the encouragement of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan with Syrian rebels in the early days of the Syrian civil war to find shelter in Turkey to, uh, in one way or another, respond to the massive onslaught and ethnic cleansing that Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, had started in 2012 and 2013. And this same very President Erdogan, who, given different estimates, has allowed over 2 million illegal migrants leave from the shores of Turkey to cross the, 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 the small sea that separates, it's not even a sea, it's an isthmus that separates Greece and Turkey. And after landing in Greece or being smuggled across the, the Bosphorus into the European part of Turkey and into Bulgaria, millions of migrants that now populate over a dozen European countries. So getting back to the article, for starters, it doesn't have much to do directly with the civil war in Syria or the rise of ISIS. This is something that we just uh, addressed in an analysis. The vast majority of the 886,662 migrants, and remember, this is in 2015, three years before today, we are well past that number, who illegally entered Europe this year and barked from Turkey, a little over half of them Syrians who took shelter in the country over the past four years. Now, at that time, the European Union was uh, saying, according to a Wall Street Journal report, that Ankara, the capital of Turkey, was very effective in previous years in preventing the outflow of refugees from the country. So what Erdogan was doing during this time, it was especially relevant because he was trying to gain the attention of European authorities, was he was using the refugee pipeline as a human spigot, where he would turn on the flow of illegal immigrants into Europe when he wasn't happy with one of their political positions. Remember, this is a year before the alleged uh, coup attempt against Erdogan, which may have actually been manufactured by individuals close to him and, and not by the Hizmet movement, the uh, Gulenis, who are now considered his arch enemy in that country. But he was able to turn the flow of refugees on in order to swamp Europe with individuals that were not just uh, uh, getting 
to be the subject of illegal smuggling operations, there were some estimates that it took ten to twenty thousand dollars per person before 2015 to be smuggled into Europe. When Erdogan let those floodgates of migrants of emigres open up, it went to somewhere around one thousand two hundred fifty a day, which was ten times less than what it had cost. So when you have the cooperation or the blind eye of a government, uh, in this case Turkey, allowing thousands and thousands of migrants to cross into Europe, the New York Times called this a multi-million dollar shadow economy, profiting from the traffic, ranging from the smugglers to the manufacturers of cheap rafts, life vests, and other equipment. By the spring of 2015, it had become easier and cheaper than ever to legally enter Europe through Turkey. And more and more people took the advantage of the opportunity that Turkey itself had created. So what was the purpose for Erdogan doing this? He was able to negotiate a 3.19 billion euro, or so, excuse me, billion dollar initial payment for uh, the Europeans to basically bribe or pay off Turkey to reseal their borders. And now, the situation that we have is Europe is paying Turkey ransom to ensure that the migrant problem does not increase. Turkey has an obligation to send these Syrians back home when the situation becomes tenable for them to do so. Yes, there are three or four million Syrians currently living in Turkey, not to mention those in Jordan and Iraq and in other countries. But until Erdogan takes a position of not trying to be the Sunni overlord of the Sunni areas of Syria and some sort of uh, uh, false prophet regarding the future of Syrians and other refugees in Europe. He shouldn't be welcoming European capitals like Angela Merkel will be doing this coming Friday. I'll report more on this situation when I return from Europe next week and broadcast live from Philadelphia. I'm Ejwada Tamimi, next after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines.
Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. I'm Greg Romy, your host on WWDB 860 AM. And our next guest is someone that I have had the privilege of following his career from when he was 15 or 16 years old. I'm sure he'll correct me. Uh, monitoring jihadi communications going all the way back to 2008 and 2009. Ayman Jawada Tamimi is a graduate of Bresno's College from Oxford University, and he has appeared on some of the front pages of major American and global newspapers, whether it's briefing the New York Times on exposing an Islamic State uh, document archive or providing regular comments at the Washington Post, the Associated Press and Reuters, or if it's updating our database of the project that he's uh, involved with uh, tangentially, where it's not so active right now, but we do have some plans for it to increase with Jihad Intel at the Middle East Forum. I'm in a uh, 10-year veteran of the organization. Welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be on. So, Ayman, how did you get into this business from your teens now to the point where you have traveled to many Middle Eastern countries? You're, you're on beck and call from foreign governments that seek your advice regarding uh, jihadist practices. And, and, and more so, how are you able to get this unique information that you report on a day-to-day basis? So I began actually by, uh, in the realm of providing assistance for the president, uh, Dr. Daniel Pipe. Uh, I would translate some of his articles. Uh, he had a particular interest uh, in Latin as a novelty, so because I did Latin in school and wanted to practice my prose composition, I did the translated some of his articles into Latin. It turned out to be very, very useful for me and him. And then in about 2000, in summer of 2009, I doing an internship and providing research assistance, and then graduate became an, uh, uh, an adjunct fellow and then a writing fellow, and then finally I uh, took up this Jihad Intel project beginning around 2013 and 2014. I, uh, the terms of the information I have, partly it comes from doing extensive field work, but also uh, it's possible uh, if you... Uh, know how to use social media well, you can establish a variety of contacts uh, online as well. So um, I, uh, I have a variety of means to obtain my information, and uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very in-depth research, as you, as you know. Right. So I understand that you are regarded as one of the world's foremost experts on Islamic State or, or ISIS administration. A lot of people focus on violence, but you have actually been able to go behind the veil, if we will, of the organization's operational practices. How did you become interested in this field? And and right now, a lot of people are saying that the U.S. is engaged in its last battle on IS territory uh, in Syria, you know, if we don't count some of the villages and warrens that they fled to. What's the future of this organization? Well, then, right to the first question, I was interested in uh, uh, the inner workings because I felt that you know you can track the propaganda on a day-to-day basis because they release so much material, and you could produce analyses of that and say, well, you know, this percentage is devoted to covering their governance structures, and this this percentage in terms of their violence when they execute people um, or execute Western hostages, but. I wanted to understand uh, how it worked 
intern is a system, and I, I think one of the best ways to do that was through documents because it is very difficult. It was, I mean, very difficult to try to just talk to people living in areas like Raqqa uh, and Deir Ez Zor back in uh, 2014 and 2015 because you know there's understandably a lot of residents were afraid that they were being monitored and by IS and uh, they didn't want to say anything critical. So uh, in that regard, I think documents have been one of the best ways to uh, to uh, to uh, ascertain the inner workings of the Islamic State. And I compiled a large. I began compiling a large archive in the beginning of 2015, and it's gone to well over a thousand documents uh, since then. And you know, the New York Times, when they the, their inspiration for it came from my archive and. Uh, I was uh, helping them authenticate things they collected in the field in Iraq. Um, uh, you know, several months before the story began appearing in the newspapers. So, uh, as for the future of Islamic State, well, yes, we after a long delay where Islamic State lost most of its territory, there is supposed to be this final phase of removing the group from its last uh, villages that it controls on the borders uh, of the banks of the Euphrates River near the border with Iraq. Um, but, I mean, by no means is it really the end of the organization. I mean, there are many areas where uh, they've been cleared from, that they reappear as insurgents and op cells, uh, terrorist cells, like, for example, in the north of Iraq. Uh, and then there are areas where they've completely turned up a new, uh, new presence and... Uh, uh, they have to be cleared out of them. I mean, good example this is the long desert borders between Iraq and Syria, and in the mainly southern, uh, in the mainly Druze southern Syrian province of Sumeda, uh some Islamic State operatives have turned up in the mountainous uh, volcano areas and uh, to the east of the province, and then the Syrian government and its allies uh, are still struggling to remove them because it's such difficult terrain. So I mean. You can really, certainly, I think the state project as a whole has collapsed. It's not 2014-15 anymore, but this is going to be around for a long time. Now, I understand that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the uh, the head, the caliph, if you will, of the uh, Islamic State organization, has gone beyond the borders, of, not himself physically, but he's sort of franchised the organization in Afghanistan and Sudan in Libya and in Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula to a certain extent and other areas throughout the Middle East, even extending so far as Nigeria. Now, the U.S. says that it's engaged in battle against ISIS in Syria and in Iraq. But what, what pretends for the future of these affiliates in places very far away, thousands of miles from Mosul and, and the place of uh, the Islamic State's inception? So, the, yes, what you're touching on is the affiliate uh, model that has developed where you have a central leadership in, based in Iraq and Syria, and then you have what they call the distant provinces of the Islamic State, which are those that are areas where the Islamic State is present outside of Iraq and Syria, so like Sinai, Libya, uh, and Nigeria. Um, when you look at these places, it really is a um, mixed picture in terms of... Uh, how you want to assess it. I mean, I think Nigeria actually is the case where you've had probably the biggest problem for the Islamic State in terms of controlling outside affiliates, where you had a major split between a more extreme wing that rejected the central authority, and then you have the standard Islamic State West Africa affiliate, 
Um, so Abu Bakr Shakal, who became very notorious in the media for kidnapping of schoolgirls, he's the more extreme wing that uh, Islamic State rejects now. And then you have the standard Islamic State West Africa media province uh, under the Bernawi brothers. Um, elsewhere, uh, I mean, you uh, Libya was seen for a long time, for example, as a sort of fallback option because they controlled some territory along the coast, Mediterranean coast, but. I mean, that since has been removed, and the coalition was involved in that, uh, in supporting local forces to do that. But the Islamic State still exists as a, uh, again, like in Iraq, as a terrorist, uh, terrorist cells, insurgent cells, and that partly does have to do with the vastness of the terrain and the difficulty in securing it all. So um, I think it's like Al-Qaeda in the way that you, you do have this center that has its various affiliates around the world. And it's a mixed picture in terms of uh, how they fare against their rivals and uh, how much control does the center exert over its affiliates. So going beyond the idea of just them being able to operate in physical domain, many of the uh, known wolf attacks, and I, I say known wolves because many of these individuals um, that committed terror attacks in Europe to a much lesser extent in the United States, in Turkey and in some other locales of where IS fighters came from or where their foreign fighters came from, have gone back and were in some cases controlled by cells operating from within Syria. I'm reminded of the um, the Paris attacks and, and the Belgian airport attacks, even in, in Turkey to a certain extent. But what kind of influence yeah. is IS able to uh, uh, cater in terms of those fighters who have returned home or to cells that were homegrown based on the indoctrination of following IS materials through the Al-Shabaab media agency. So your question is how much influence does this IS center have over these cells, right? Right, well, that to a certain extent, but also what threat does their virtual caliphate pose to individuals in the West? Right, so I think what you can talk about is uh, is uh, virtual planning, as it were, uh, which is term being coined for this, in which uh, someone who does, say, uh, follow Islamic State propaganda and uh, is, uh, gets involved in, say, their closed fora online, say, through Telegram, uh, might develop contacts to, say, someone who works in uh, Islamic State media uh, or in uh, external operations. And it's like, it's, it's not knowing the person, they might not know, Islamic State might not know this person never met them personally, but they can direct the operation through virtual means, through encrypted chat, uh, chats and so on. Um, so the result is that often this lone wolf appellation uh, doesn't turn out to be accurate because then there is some kind of connection between IS center, as it were, even if it's only a virtual connection. But then, of course, you have these other cases, uh, the Paris attacks, where they were operatives who had partly come from come from uh, from the center out to, to uh, out into Europe as part of a strategy of attacking uh, the states of the coalition against the uh, Islamic State. Uh, I think uh, if you ask about the threat level, then I think uh, in, the long run, in the long run, it's probably, I think, in comparison to Al-Qaeda, that uh, it's uh, certainly a bigger threat from the Islamic State. Uh, than uh, Al-Qaeda. I think the Islamic State has been able to inspire uh, uh, inspire extreme, uh, extremists to take up arms in a way that Al-Qaeda really hasn't been able to since 2014. 
So moving this back to the work of, you know, being able to assess the threat level, what can governments, militaries, intelligence agencies, and even the general public do to mitigate the threat the IS now poses, even though they've lost a lot of their territory, but they still have influence mechanisms that are actively trying to disrupt the West? I think uh, if you uh, look particularly at Europe, uh, there have been some problems that really impeded uh, stopping this, 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 this uh, stopping some of these attacks. I mean, for example, the problem you have in Europe is that uh, you have open land borders, this Schengen zone, as it's called, and it makes it very easy, for example, for operatives who, say, might conduct an uh, attack in one place. They could, they could easily flee over the borders into another country and perhaps go into hiding. And then another issue, I think, is lack of resources that were put in and lack of uh, cooperation between countries. Uh, it certainly is true that monitoring an individual 24-7 or a suspect individual 24-7, that takes a lot of resources. So, but then, of course, the answer is you, you just have to invest more into it. Um, uh, I think also that probably uh, some of the debate that was surrounding uh, large-scale refugee flows and migration, that, uh, uh, you know, you did have one side that would say that, well, there's no there's no terrorist threat at all, or the Islamic State might not try to take advantage of large-scale flow, migration flows to insert operatives. Uh, but, uh, you know, that subsequently was proven to be uh, to be false. I mean, it was well-intentioned why people were trying to push back against that uh, talk, because they didn't want to be seen as bigoted or something like that. But, uh, you know, uh, the fact is it was quite logical the Islamic State would try to take advantage of large-scale migration flows. So, you know, there, you do need to have control mechanisms for, for, for that as well. Right. I mean, I'm in Germany right now in Frankfurt. I'm walking on the street. I remember I was here about five years ago. And you would go to the West End and, and then up to uh, the center of the city and make your way to the industrial areas. You could tell that the character of the city itself was one that was diverse with the uh, Turkish population that came here in the 50s and 60s, very strong banking sector. But now I'm walking and, and some streets are entirely full with what seems to be members of the refugee community here. And I'm not saying that they're, they're more prone to any sort of, uh, of extremist influence or whatever, but there's a noticeable difference in the character of not just this, European city, but also in Rome, where I was yesterday, in southern Italy, with a, with a very strong Libyan and, and Tunisian presence. How is Europe going to address the, the aftermath of the uh, human wave that has entered Europe? Uh, and, and, you know, tangential to that or, or parallel to that, uh, do you think that there's a way to, to, to sort of uh, inculcate or inoculate these populations from being subject to, to, to be a little bit more extreme than others that are here at home? Um, well, I mean, in terms of what I observe, too, is that you know, the, the, the influx of uh, refugees, uh, Syrian refugees was noticeable in, when I was in Germany back in uh, 2016, for example. You could see Arabic signs that were put up or advertisements for real estate to be rented uh, that were in Arabic. Uh, so... I mean, yeah, the, the, the presence is definitely felt. I mean, I don't, now that the wave has happened, uh, like this particular wave, like you can't just deport them all back to where they came from. Like the decision was made 
to accept them. Uh, in terms of inoculating them, uh, I mean, there, there, there are certain things that, uh, say, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the Western governments could do, like uh, improving cooperation between community leaders and, and the police. I mean, for example, they tried it in some parts of, of the UK. But uh, I think ultimately, in the long run, like uh, just in general, that has to that uh, the ideological phase of jihadism, as it were, that this would uh, that uh, the Muslim world as a whole has to get over it. Uh, like this is in, in the long run, I'm saying. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the situation uh, that we see, and and I mean, this is going to have to be the uh, the end of the interview. We have our next guest coming on, but I think that the ability for uh, the ma gross majority of these populations is going to have to integrate into European society with whatever that means um, to, to speak oh, the, sure. the lingua uh, that, franca. That, yeah, but I mean that has to yeah. they they have to have they have to do that themselves. Like there's only so much the uh, the uh, there's only so much to, like uh, carrots. So say a Western government could offer for that. You, you see what I mean? No, no, not 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 to force it, but to create the atmosphere to allow them to have. A, a organic uh, matriculation in, into parts of these societies. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of, uh, of things that come along with the two that might be special of, of an affinity to these groups. But the ability for, um, you know, uh, uh, culturally autonomous no-go zones or, or whatever you want to call it is, is not necessarily uh, conducive with the way that Western liberal democracies work. And it's anathema to a lot of the values that uh, are the, the, the basic establishment of a lot of these democracies here. I'm in Jawad at Tamimi. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Next, next, we'll talk Russia and Syria. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org. Or check us out on Twitter, at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that, overall, you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. 
we have our next guest, Alexei Khlebnikov from the International Affairs Council, excuse me, the Russian International Affairs Council, where he previously worked as a consultant to various think tanks and institutions in the U.S., the Middle East, and Russia. He received his master's degree in global public policy from the University of Minnesota and is currently a Ph.D. candidate there. During his master's and Ph.D. studies, he has made several trips to the region, working and studying in Syria, Israel, Egypt, and Hungary. Alexei, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we have heard a lot in the news in the last week about the ongoing, uh, uh, if we can call aerial or sea-based or land-based battles and the parallel diplomatic negotiations involving Russia, Turkey, Israel, Lebanon, Iran, the United States, and of course, the many actors in Syria. I'd like to start off by asking you, what does Russia hope to gain from its intervention in Syria, which is now approaching its third year? Well, in the first place, uh, when we talk about Russia's goals, uh, there are many of them, but the initial one which Moscow proclaimed was stabilizing uh, the country to prevent the collapse of uh, state institutions and army, uh, not to let the country slide into chaos, uh, as it happened with uh, Iraq and, uh, and Libya. Secondly, of course, it was, uh, from Moscow's view, uh, its own security concerns, so it's better to fight um, terrorists uh, somewhere abroad rather than on its own territory. And as we know, it's uh, over 5,000 um, Russian citizens and uh, individuals from former ex-Soviet republics uh, were fighting again uh, among um, ISIS ranks in Syria. Right. The, the commander uh, of ISIS's another, land forces was a uh, was a Chechen, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, significant amount of Chechens uh, uh, were fighting uh, in ranks of ISIS as well. So an another uh, goal was to reestablish itself as a military actor and its military presence in Syria. Because, uh, as we know, uh, major powers like U.S., France, uh, U.K., Turkey, they do have their military bases in the region, majorly in the Gulf. And by reestablishing itself and uh, making um, an uh, air base and meme and uh, reconstructing its uh, naval facility in Tartus, Russia, and basically puts itself on par with uh, other powers' presence in the region. And uh, as we're talking currently, we see that actually one of the major goals of uh, Moscow uh, reached so the, the government of uh, Syrian government uh, stabilized, uh, regained the majority of the Syrian territory. But now we uh, observe the um, shift from the military stage of the conflict to the political. And uh, Russia clearly demonstrated it has capacity to successfully uh, conduct military operation abroad. But now it faces even... Uh, more complicated task whether it can deliver on political process, on humanitarian aid, reconstruction, um, and that's a quite more complicated task than than the military campaign. So it seems to me that the Russians are now trying to cash in on their intervention over the last three years. I mean, they have signed a new, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, 99-year lease 
on the Tartus naval base. They're looking at trying to increase the size of their air, air base at Khamamin. Right. They also have a significant presence in Latakia. And you have Russian military police units acting as a sort of buffer between Hezbollah and Iran and the Golan Heights, along with Syrian forces there and the Israelis to enforce the demilitarized zone from the 1973 armistice agreement. And also you have Turkish and Russian military police units lined along a, a few dozen bases in Idlib province. But at what cost to Russia uh, has this come? They've gained the strategic advantage, but on the larger scale, they've in one way or another been complicit in helping defend an actor who has essentially ethnically cleansed millions of people in Syria. Do, do you think that there will be a international price to pay, or are we back to the days of Obama uh, abdicating his role in Syria to Putin? Well, to start with, uh, yes, Russia reestablished itself militarily, and uh, yes, they signed the agreement uh, with a 49-year lease with really? automatic prolongation for another uh, 49 years. So, yeah, it's almost naked to 100 yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's military gains. But as, uh, as we talk about, like uh, you mentioned, uh, like um, monetizing on its military gains, that's one of the um, most valuable questions: whether Russia could uh, monetize its military victory and political victory in Syria. Because if we talk about reconstruction and then you know starting to get a return on your investments, it will take uh, it, it requires quite significant uh, economic investments in the first place. And that's what Russia is lacking. And alone, even with China, Iran, and Turkey, it's impossible to reconstruct Syria. Um, different uh, agencies estimate uh, different sums, but they, they vary from uh, half a trillion to one tri uh, trillion dollars for for serious reconstruction. So it's quite a significant uh, amount of money. So um, this is why. So let's let's, let's let's play that out a second before we address But before we address the issue of ethnic cleansing and, and Russia's complicity in supporting Syrian war crimes, I mean, if I can imagine the mechanism and how this may work, the international community, as part of a political settlement in Syria, will gather a donors' conference, very much like they did after Iraq. Uh, after, after some other conferences, the Libya intervention that took place, the uh, the rebuilding Tunisia after the revolution there, and they'll pledge 10, 20, 50, 100 uh, billion, 500 billion, whatever it'll be, to help Syria get back on track. But because Russia has a, a military presence or the ability to cast its military presence in something like 70% of Syrian territory, it'll be a lot of cement. It'll be a lot of labor. It'll be a lot of technology and heavy equipment that the Russians will, will, will supply. So it seems like when we ask the question if it was worth the blood, the, the, the sweat, and, and, and the tears of Russian families that lost Russian servicemen in Syria, that, that on, on, on balance, they're going to gain out of this intervention. Right, but um, your wording sounds quite dubious. So on the one hand, you say that, yeah, Western... Uh basically um world is ready to commit to construction when Assad is off of power and then you mentioned that uh, it's because of russian military presence there so most right, but no that's um, not what i'm saying i'm saying that the sorry, russian military you, presence the, the russian military um, presence military allows them to basically presence. act as the arbiter in what kind of construction the goes on there and, and there's actually there's there's a silver lining here for the west in supplying reconstruction 
in Syria, and, and, it, and it's yet to be told if the, uh, the Syrian government will allow this to happen. But you have something like 14 million displaced peoples, both within the Syrian border and outside of it. And I think that what the West is going to have to do is they're going to have to decide, are they willing to finance Syrian reconstruction when Bashar al-Assad is, is still in power? Because on one hand, you have the need to rebuild the country, but they may not want to do that with a, uh, with a genocidal uh, dictator uh, uh, in, in, in command. But on the other hand, there are millions of Syrian refugees that are in Europe. There's 3 million in Turkey, another million in Lebanon, another 1.5 million in Jordan. And they're going to want to be able to rebuild their homes so they have some place to go. So there's going to be this balance between uh, you know, trying to support an international scofflaw, but on the other hand, trying to, to resettle a lot of the, uh, the issues that were the aftermath of, 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 the, of the Syrian civil war. So I, I think Russia, either way, um, has sort of positioned themselves as a, uh, a beneficiary of this conflict. Well, in the first place, it seems to me that you threw, like, uh, billions of problems in one pod, which is uh, not quite correct. So let's start uh, from the beginning. Let's acknowledge that there is no sense in any civil war, and it's impossible to blame everything on one side and saying that Assad is the primary reason and the only reason for, for everything. That's completely not true. As you uh, told about the ethnic cleansing and uh, use of chemical weapons, it's already been uh, proven even by the United Nations that uh, chemical weapons also have been used by the rebels. And ethnic cleansing was also made by ISIS and Jihad al-Nusra, and it was quite uh, broad international consensus on the fact that uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda-affiliated militants uh, hugely dominated um, all parts of Syria and all uh, opposition groups. So it's, uh, I would prefer not to mix oranges and apples here and uh, try to uh, separate different issues which we are discussing. Uh, to come back to the um, Syrian reconstruction and um, uh, need, uh, Russia's and uh, Syrian and Iranian and Turkish need for European funds and American funds there, uh, it's uh, quite important to remember that uh, Moscow um, primary uh, goal in Syria was not to save the the Assad family or the individual of uh, Bashar al-Assad, but to uh, secure the state institutions, which means basically that uh, it doesn't matter who is in power uh, in Syria for Moscow. The, uh, the most important and vital thing for Moscow is that whoever is in power, but Russia's interest in Syria must be taken into account. So it seems to me here that uh, nowadays Moscow does not see uh, any possible uh, or alternative option uh, for transition uh, which will secure its, um, its gains and its interests in Syria. So this is why you're right, uh, telling, uh, saying that uh, uh, Moscow guarantees survival of the current government uh, and and the regime, as you as you put it, uh, but it also guarantees the uh, state uh, sovereignty and um, uh, rigidity of the uh, state institution, which uh, prevents uh, keeps state from from the collapse. So uh, let me let me yes, just ask you a question about the uh, the role of Russia as it relates to a post-conflict Syria. Uh, do you think 
that a regime that is complicit with ethnic cleansing its own people uh, through a lot of the practices that Assad has allowed or, or has been behind in Syria uh, gives Russia the moral responsibility to not necessarily go along with a dictator that has participated in, in war crimes? Or do you think that the security need of Russia uh, and Syria to a certain extent doesn't necessarily excuse Assad's war crimes, but makes him a necessary evil to have in place there? I think it's one way how to put it, but uh, I think that ethical component here is not the dominant one. Uh, security and uh, geopolitical and economic interests might uh, over-dominate uh, uh, that thing. And also, uh, what we constantly hear from Moscow, that it's not right to blame, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing and everything, war crimes and Assad. Uh, opposition also... I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not so, saying that there uh, wasn't other parties yeah, that were responsible. You had Sunni, you had Sunni on Shia, ethnic cleansing by, by, by ISIS. Um, you had Jabhat al-Nusra that, that you pointed is, uh, out that was true. responsible for, for wiping the ground with a lot of different groups. Maybe you will these, you finish? Yeah, I'm just saying that I'm I'm just trying to clarify that. No, you interrupted me for for third time. I think it's not quite correct from your side. <clears throat> okay, so where where am I wrong by saying that Assad was responsible for ethnic cleansing? I'm saying that uh, uh, in the first place, there are no saints in uh, in any civil war, and uh, secondly, uh, opposition was also involved in, uh, in in war crimes and ethnic cleansing together is with. Uh, 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 siding with um, with uh, radical groups in Syria, and uh, during this interview, you never mentioned about about that you only blame uh, Syrian regime for that. Of course, uh, his, uh, the, the the Syrian government is responsible for for lots of uh, uh, ugly things, together with uh, with all participants of this uh, civil war. But the question is that not about the ethical part of it, but about how uh, you would pacify and settle the conflict. Uh, on a long-term basis. For any political transition, for any political reform uh, to take place, firstly, security guarantees needed. When you talked about Iraq and Libya, when the international community started to invest after the invasion and uh, uh, forceful topple of, the, of their regimes, firstly, they provided security um, guarantees, and then they started to, to invest. Uh, the only thing is that it didn't work uh, in... in uh, neither in Iraq, nor in Libya, nor in, uh, in, in Afghanistan. So here, uh, as I see it, Moscow tries to, um, to push its own uh, vision and approach, uh, constructive approach, as it is in comparison to the one of the West, uh, which ended up in chaos in the uh, dysfunctional institutions in Libya, Iraq, and uh, Afghanistan. So this is why Russia wants to uh, uh, pursue the West to go with a transition period. And again, I'm repeating that for Moscow, it's not uh, a uh, asset staying in power. is not a must. It's not a uh, compulsory, um, compulsory thing. Moscow will be ready to um, for the political transition and to change of, of power by, by political means. But, as I already mentioned, uh, only in the case when Russia's interests in Syria uh, would be taken into account. But uh, so far, 
it seems to me that Moscow doesn't uh, see that in any alternative scenario, its interests in Syria uh, will be taken into account if that change of which Western society and, and, and the United States talking about will take place. So, so if I can just uh, recant your analysis here and maybe offer just one more point, we've got about three, four minutes left. Russia will do what it has to do to secure its interests, regardless of the actors that it has to work with in Syria in order to not have a repeat of an Afghanistan or a Libya or an Iraq, for that matter, where we saw intervention from third-party countries in conflicts in those areas, or even uh, started by other countries, the U.S. invading Iraq, the U.S. Uh, coming back into Afghanistan, without an exit strategy. So Russia will be involved until it can secure its interests. And, and then, and only then, is it appropriate to discuss a political settlement or a political transition. Is that what you're saying? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I didn't quite follow the... the uh, the line of uh, and, uh, sure, on, sure. On so, so basically, what I'm saying is, Russia will do what it has to do in Syria until it can secure its interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, that's quite legit um, um, thinking. For for Russia, it's one of the major um, one one of the major reasons, and now one of the major concerns for the restoration of Syria, which is security. And I think you Russia see, I, 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 find, I take great exception it. with this idea that Russia has um, the ability to do what it can to secure its interests in the country without taking into account the gross damage that has been caused by the Assad regime. I mean, you know, if, if we remember going back seven years, it was street protests being met with machine gun fire and then rocks being met with tanks. And the amount of torture, the amount of, uh, I would even go so far as to say genocide carried out by the Assad regime. Now, if you want to talk about ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra and uh, Hizbah al-Takhrir and these other groups that have perpetuated their own atrocities against Alawites and, and Syrian citizens and other individuals that were not uh, uh, complicit with their activities. I think that the West did a pretty good job of intervening and saying we will not allow ISIS to exist. We will destroy and degrade their capabilities, and we will work with our allies. And e even going so far to have the West and Russia to work together in joint attacks against ISIS cells. But there is still one evil dictator standing here, and the Russian government has chosen to put its lot with the. Assad government instead of allowing for a political transition, which will allow not just for Russia to, to, you know, cash in on whatever kind of government contracts that it wants to get, but it has emboldened Iran, it's emboldened Turkey, it's emboldened a lot of other actors that I think are going to contribute to further regional instability because the, the battle that you have right now is one between nation states carving out their own specific interest areas in Syria, rather than having Syria mend and 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 to, to to start the healing process of getting beyond. So ISIS is gone. It's time for Assad my, my, to go. My, my, and I my, think my, that Russia is the be. only power that's keeping it in, in in place. And I think that that's morally wrong. You have uh, we have one minute left. Your your response. 
So basically, you talk about U.S. constructive and approach towards Syria and stabilization. I think uh, it's quite arguable because the United States government and the leadership itself acknowledge that its uh, uh, program training the equip completely failed. That uh, uh, almost everything which they supply to to so-called moderate uh, opposition ended up in the hands of uh, terrorists, and that was clearly acknowledged by the U.S. government. That the first thing. Secondly, you said that uh, countries, instead of carving their interest in Syria, should, you know, unify it, uh, itself in the uh, healing of Syria. But, uh, I mean, maybe maybe that's one of the goals in, of, uh, of American presence in, in South and in North, to basically uh, prevent country from unifying. Uh, Alexei, I think we uh, may have lost him here. Anyway, I... I'm not very happy having a guest on this program that's trying to shill for the Assad regime. I understand his and Russia's perspectives on this, but to, to be able to have someone who's trying to make a comparison between U.S. actions that failed with its programs under the Obama administration and not taking into account any of the intervention that was going on with um, the uh, the last 18 months of the Trump administration, the attempted rapprochement that was batted away by President Putin, it's just something that, that doesn't mesh, especially when it sounds more like it's Russian propaganda talking points rather than it's a cogent analysis of some of the work that we have coming out here from the organization. Next, 212. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the why? Or so you think. Sure, you know the why for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the why, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here in Frankfurt, Germany, broadcasting live in Philadelphia. Uh, we now have Matt Bennett with our two-on-two segment. Matt, we have a, uh, a, a news article on Saudi Arabia and Iran's accusing it of being behind the uh, massacre of 25 people at a military parade. Can, can you read more into that? Yeah, good morning, Greg. How's it going today? That's, it's great. Let's, uh, we, we've got three minutes left, so let's dive into this. All right. Uh, so we have a Saudi foreign ministry official denied uh, Riyadh-backed 
the gunman who killed 25 people at a military parade in southwestern Iran over the weekend, almost half of them Revolutionary Guards. Supreme Leader Ayatollah al-Khamenei said on Monday the attackers were paid by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I guess he had different information from the deputy of the Iran's Revolutionary Guards who accused the United States and Israel of their involvement. What do you make of it, Greg, and uh, who can we blame? This is a direct result of the Iranians being unable to manage their own economy, their own minorities. I mean, when we think about Iran, it's 50% Persian, but then it's Avazi, it's Khuzestani, it's Kurdish, it's Azeri, it's uh, Baluchi. You know, in, in, in the end of the day, the Re- Revolutionary Guard Corps and the mullahs coming out of Tehran, uh, Iran's capital, and Qom, the spiritual center of the country, are more interested in securing their own power rather than trying to uh, benefit their people. And I think a combination of American sanctions, of a uh, unified Middle Eastern front against Iran, and, and, and at, at, the, uh, at the, uh, uh, the climax of this, the reason why they're blaming America and the United States and the UAE and Saudi Arabia and everyone else and, and their mother for that, for that matter is because they can't look inwards and realize that there may be a revolution coming in Iran. And it's horrible that innocent people were killed in this attack. But I think the only people to blame for this uh, uh, attack taking place was the mismanagement of the Iranian military and their allowance to have uh, division in their country because they're not paying attention to the very root of the problem that allows terrorists like this to prosper from within their midst. Now, um, I think we have uh, about 30 seconds left, so I just want to end it like this uh, with, uh, with a final thought on the, uh, the last guest that was on this program. We will not allow Middle East Forum Century Radio to be a platform for Islamist apologists, for people trying to shill for the Russian regime, or for people who are trying to scapegoat extremism. And insofar as I'm still the host of this show, uh, there may have been technical problems there, but as far as I'm considered, that was the end of the interview when he was trying to, to get away from the point that Russia is complicit with ethnic cleansing, with genocide, and with purely anti-democratic and, and, and immoral behavior. Uh, next week, we've got a fascinating program coming to speak a little bit more about Israel and, and then the upcoming elections in November. But that's it for this week on Middle East Forum Century Radio. And I'd like to thank Delaney Anchek, Lisa Barbunas, and our guest host, Matthew Bennett, and all of our, our guests that came on the program today. Thanks, and have a great week. 